Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning, good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Romans 9. We will take upon ourselves the very straightforward and simple task of figuring out what Romans 9, 10, and 11 are all about in one go. But I think you are all well prepared now. We come to the conclusion of our series on a theology of Israel. And so all the other sermons were prepping you for this one. All the other sermons were merely introductory material to my attempting to explain Romans 11. Now, the reason I'm... It's so funny. I, I had grown weary already of this topic. I know that that may shock some of you. But I was instructed by Joel to continue <laughs> to the end. And so here we are. He, he has a privilege as an elder to tell me what to do sometimes. And so here we are at Romans 11. I don't know about what you do for a living, but sometimes there are tasks that are harder than other tasks. So with fear and trembling, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles. Lord, we thank you that he was uh, faithful to preach the hot gospel, Lord, to those who were willing to hear it. We thank you, Lord, for opening the eyes and ears, uh, not only of Jews, but of Gentiles, of extending your kingdom not just to a single nation, Lord, but to all the nations of the world. We are all of us here. None of us are ethnic Jews. We pray, Lord God, that this grace that you've shown us, the fact that you have grafted us into yourself, would not be something we presume upon, that we would be haughty of. Lord, we pray that you would untangle the meaning of Romans 11 for us, that you would give us a deep understanding of you and who we are in light of who you are and the future hope not only of ourselves, but of every nation in this world. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, the establishment of the state of Israel, that is the geopolitical nation of Israel in the Middle East, that Israel, in the 20th century has fueled a new high in speculation about God's future plans for ethnic Jews. There have always been some who have boldly declared that ethnic Israel would play a distinctive role at the end of the church age in the eschatology of human history. In some eschatological frameworks, the return of ethnic Jews is actually a primary thing that has to occur in order for the end to come. I'm just going to assert right out of the gate that that is not true. Uh (laughs) We're going to discuss uh, the future of Israel, but there is no requirement There is no requirement anywhere in Scripture that the entire nation of Israel return before God can usher in the end. I'm just going to remind everyone that God can usher in the end whenever he wants, uh, contingent upon nothing. I think speculating about exactly what's going to happen in the final stages of human history is foolish, uh, even more so after studying this chapter. (laughs) As a solid postmillennialist, as an optimist, I was moderately shaken. (laughs) by trying to untangle aspects of this, and I think we all need a little more humility. There's nothing in Romans 11 that tells us the order of events at the end. Now, in the common and current circumstances of the church, few have dared to deny the likelihood of a special providence for ethnic Israel in the days of the end times, to deny some outstanding, yet-to-be-realized covenantal promises to be fulfilled. And what I mean by that is, Some people go into the Old Testament and they look at the promises of God to ethnic Israel, to Jews, to the people, and they think that there is somehow something still outstanding. 
there's some promise from Daniel, some promise from Deuteronomy that God is waiting to fill, and that is not true. All of God's promises, all of God's statements of what he would do were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Outside of Jesus, there is no Old Testament prophecy waiting to be fulfilled. Now, there are prophecies in the New Testament that are hard enough (laughs) without trying to complicate things by bringing in stuff that God has already dealt with. The view that God still has a special plans for ethnic Israel is assumed to be supported by Romans 11 more than, than by any other passage in the Bible. And when you take passages like this out and you connect it to other faulty theology where you're just picking randomly throughout the New Testament, you can construct an eschatology uh, that that sounds logical and sounds uh, that captures the imagination, but this is one of the problems with illiterate modern Christians, is we just take sections randomly from here and there and everywhere, and we start to put them together in a system that actually doesn't consider the context of where we took it. Right? You can't understand Romans 11 without Romans 9 and 10. And most of the time when people argue for a future hope for Israel, the nation of Israel, they start arguing from Romans 11 without considering what Romans 9 and 10 actually mean. Now, Jesus, as we have covered already, is the tree of life. He is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He does not wither. We are united to him. And if we're united to him, then we are a righteous tree planted by streams of living water. That's what we covered. Jesus is the king of a nation. He inherited the throne of David. He himself is the new Israel, and we, as the church, are new Israel because we are united to him. There is no Israel apart from him. There is no kingdom of David apart from him. There is no tree of life apart from him. There is nothing apart from him. As Doug Wilson says, it's Christ or chaos. It's Christ or it's nothing. What Romans 11 teaches is that the true Israel is a nation defined by faith in Christ, not the flesh of one's father. Now, all of you who are sitting there who know that I'm like pedo down to my toes, right? We baptize the babies. We, can, we give communion to the babies. I'm all about the babies. I'm going to say some moderately shocking things like it does not matter who your parents are. Right? It, it has never mattered who your parents are. What matters is your individual faith. Now, those of us who are brought up in Christian families are closer to the kingdom of heaven because we're in a Christian family, right? Um, God says in the Old Testament the purpose of Christian marriage is Christian offspring. So he gives Christians kids because the assumption is they're halfway there. But it does not matter who your father is, and Romans 11 is clear on this. Paul could care less who your dad is. Where? Show me the faith. Show me the faith. We can't argue, I'm sorry, it's just, Paul is arguing that it does not matter who your dad is, and then people take Romans 11 to demonstrate somehow that it matters absolutely who ethnic Jews' dad is, because there's still some outstanding promises to them. But it's about individual faith. Now, Romans 9, 1 through eleven thirty six is a single unit. It's one unit of thought. Paul addresses the tension between God's faithfulness in uniting elect Jews and elect Gentiles together as a single person. And this is juxtaposed to the rejection of the Messiah by the Jews. So 9 through 11 is all about what God is doing in his faithfulness and what ethnic Israel did in their unfaithfulness. And he compares the two things. Now, this section is bookended by prayers. This is partially how you can figure out. When when Paul is about to jump into something very thorny, he prays at the beginning of it, and he prays at the end of it. And that, that 
indicates to us that this, the, the content in the middle is even more complicated than all the other complicated things he's saying in Romans. There is a, a prayer for the ethnic Jews in Romans 9, 1 through 5. And there is another prayer in Romans eleven thirty three through 36 for them as well. He prays for them and then talks about them and then prays for them again. And this is instruction for us all by itself. When we're dealing with these things, having a prayerful attitude of humility, of going to the Father, seeking the good of others, seeking, right, they're his enemies, and he's praying for them even while he's talking about them. It, it, it frames his, his mind about how to talk about them, because when you're bringing people before the Lord, whether they're your enemies or your friends, when you're praying for them, it changes the nature of the way you speak about them. Now, if you find yourself talking about somebody on a regular basis, I suggest that you begin just praying for them. If you pray for them, you will see that what you have to say about them will change drastically. Now, Romans is a complicated book. I'm not going to get into all of the details of its structure. But essentially, in, in 9, 6 through 29, Paul is referring to a question he asked back in Romans 3, 3. So if you turn there, Romans 3, 3. Paul says at the very start of the book, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Is there a sin so egregious that the Lord Jesus' blood cannot cover it? What if, if the sin itself is the shedding of the blood that covers it? And I think that's at what the is at the heart of nine through eleven. He's not asking. Right? His assumption is: Will any of them actually make it in? Will any Jew make it into the kingdom of heaven? Right? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Is there a sin too big for Christ's blood to cover, even the shedding of that blood? Now, Paul will explain uh, the answer to his question about God's faithfulness in the face of the unfaithfulness of ethnic Jews. He calls into question during this discussion divine election, which is what we covered last week. He promises to the, the, promise, the promises he made to the patriarchs and the attributes of God, justice, and mercy. Because the promises of the patriarchs come into it because what was the promise to Abraham? That no matter what, no matter what your kids do, no matter what your descendants do, Abraham, I will never cast them off? Or is his promise, through you, all nations will come to me? Through you, all nations will have an opportunity to be restored, not only to what Adam had, but something greater than that. Because we, we narrow the focus. What, what Abraham was, was promised was a plan for the entire world to come back to the Father. Now, he, he did it through one nation, but it, he never meant it for, to, to be one nation. Israel was always a mixed multitude. When they came out of Egypt, they were a mixed multitude. Ruth shows that they were a mixed multitude. Multiple characters throughout the story. Remember when we covered David through First and Second Samuel? He gathered in the wilderness, and who gathered around him? A bunch of Jews or a bunch of Gentiles? The people of God have always been a mixed multitude, and never more so than in the fulfillment of all the promises in Jesus Christ. The way for all the nations now is through Jesus. So he's not talking about the promises 
specifically to Israel. He's talking about the promises he made to the patriarchs about every single human being that would, that would live. Everyone has access to the Father through the Son. Now, I'm going to read a section of Romans 9 and 10 just to give us a little bit of the lay of the land before I launch into 11, because this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. People ignore chapter 9 and chapter 10 and just jump into 11. But he's been talking about the themes in 11 for a little while by the time he gets there. So if you turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 22, I'm going to read a, a big section here. And you just listen for this. Listen for the, the things we've been talking about. Jews, Gentiles, faithfulness, unfaithfulness, trees of righteousness, covenantal election, the relationship that God has not only with ethnic Israel but with everyone. This is what it says. What, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, who is he talking about there, Jews or Gentiles or both? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. There you have election. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel through the number of the sons of Israel be as, I'm sorry, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, which was a promise made to the patriarchs, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah, Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. If God had not been gracious to us, he would have cut us all off. Who is he referring to? Is there hope for Israel, even the Israel that slayed the Lord Jesus? What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith and that but that, I'm sorry, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who is born of Abraham? No, who believes. Everyone who believes can come. Well, what if you stood there right, in the courtroom, and you slap Jesus in the face and then let him out to be, can even that person be saved? Yes, if they believe in the person that they slapped. Right, what we're talking about is not the fact that all ethnic Jews were kicked out of the kingdom of heaven, because he's going to go on, I'm going to show you, he doesn't say anything like that. He says, no, there is hope for them, and he uses himself as an example, right? What, who is he? Was, was um, Paul, an ethnic Jew? 
Okay, well, and if all the ethnic Jews were kicked out, why is Paul there? (laughs) Was Paul kicked in or dragged in kicking and screaming, or did he come willingly? (laughs) It's like C.S. Lewis. When he was was converted, he said he got down on his knees, the most reluctant convert in all of England. Some of us are dragged in. And, And some Jews were so obstinate and so zealous for what they thought was God, some of them literally had to be knocked off their high horses, blinded, and then dragged into the kingdom, kicking and screaming. Jesus is the way back to God, the Father, for Jew and Gentile alike. There's no other way, and there's hope for everyone, no matter what your sin is. Now, Romans 11, 1 through 32, takes up a very difficult question of whether God has, in fact, rejected them completely. Is what is happening to them Deuteronomistic curses, which are very different than just curses? When God curses you, when God, at the end of time, says, okay, you are my sheep, you are going to go with me to heaven, and this group over here, who are a bunch of goats, I curse you, and you're going to hell. Is there any hope for them? No. None. But there is something that modern Christians need to relearn, and it's called Deuteronomistic curses, and those are the the way that God spanks his people in order to get their attention, up to and including foreign invasion, death, murder, rape. I mean, at one point, the Jews are eating each other before the exile, and all of that are Deuteronomistic curses. And I understand why people would be like, it seems like we've been cursed and there's no hope for us. And you have to have a, a very broad understanding of this kind of theology to understand that God is just trying to get your attention. And I argue that what is going on, what Paul is talking about here, are the Deuteronomistic curses. God is is saying, listen, I know you killed my son, but there's still hope. There's still hope. If you turn to him even now, after you've murdered him, there is still hope for you. How many people reading this letter originally were alive when these events occurred? Right? And the Gentiles, I, 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 would, I would think, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Jews here, and I'm, these people were the ones who killed the Lord Jesus you're telling us about? Should we kick them out? That's what I would ask. And I would have to have Paul explain very carefully why we ought not to do that. Oh, there's hope for them too? Well, if there's hope for them, there is hope for anyone. Let's get to work on the kingdom of God. Now, I'm just going to read a few verses because it's important to understand the mindset of the people in the first century after Christ was crucified. There, there are things that Jesus himself says, there are things that the prophets in the Old Testament say that make it seem like there is and shouldn't be any hope for Israel, ethnic Israel, I should say. John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Matthew 26, verse 3 through 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. In response to Pontius Pilate and choosing Barabbas, the most astounding verse in the Bible, in my opinion, Matthew 27, 25, the Jews replied to Pontius Pilate, His blood be on us and our children. Now, if I understood this, if I was reading John's account, I'd be like, yeah, okay, the blood of him is going to be on their, those Jews and their children? Well, maybe let's do that work ourselves. 
right? And you can see why Christians throughout history have been evil and wicked towards Jews because they take these kinds of things and they think it's our responsibility to punish them. And, and, and uh, don't even get me started about the Rothschilds and all the nonsense about like, the Jews running the world. I'm not even going to acknowledge that crap as being serious in any way, shape, or form. There is a real problem, though, throughout church history, throughout the Middle Ages, where people use and abuse the Jews because they killed Jesus. And they, they, they didn't just think that up in the Middle Ages, right? The, the anti-Semitism that is so strong sometimes, ha- right, for Christians, comes out of these kinds of verses. But Paul is going to say, no, 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 no. Everyone was put out, is what he's going to tell us. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, everybody is on the outside, so that entrance now can be by faith and faith alone. God has not cast out the Jews and and turned his back on them and turned his ear away from them for eternity because he hasn't done that to anybody. Now, wouldn't it flip the whole thing? Like, this is always, I find it fascinating with people, but I recently had an argument about whether or not Adam would be in heaven. And I was like, what do you mean he wouldn't? Right? I mean, is even his sin so bad Jesus' blood can't cover it? What if we get there and Caiaphas is there? Right? Paul entered heaven to the cheers of the people he sent there ahead of himself. There is hope for anyone. Right? And, and when Paul starts preaching, how does everybody respond? Oh, no, it's that guy. We don't trust that guy. He had to go into hiding for a little while. And, and, and maybe hopefully everybody would forget, but nobody really forgot what he had done to the church. And was there hope even for Paul? If there's hope for Paul, there's hope for anyone. Now, the rabbinic Judaism that Jesus faced in Judea during his life that rejected the Lord Jesus outright continues down to our own day. When you hear of ethnic Jews, you hear of the religion of Judaism, whatever form it's in, it descends from the rabbinic Judaism that was there when Jesus arrived. It wasn't biblical faith. It was something else entirely, as I've tried to... It's as foreign to the Gospels as Islam is, but it was something that was there that Jesus confronted, and he was saying, no, this isn't what I, we are about. This is not what the Father's about. This is not what the Spirit's about. This is not what I'm about. And so we're going to put all of you out, and the test now isn't, oh, Abraham, Abraham, oh, we have the temple, the temple, oh, we have Deuteronomy, we have the law of Moses. No, it's about faith. And if he extends an olive branch to the people who murdered him, oughtn't we to extend an olive branch to those ethnic Jews still in the world today? Faith, not flesh, is the key. Faith, taught and caught by the culture of a home. Right, because again, some people are like, "Well, aren't you like the guy who baptizes babies on the profession of their parents' faith?" Yes, and that's not right. That still works in this whole system of theology, because right, I, I, I'm going to out my kids. When you're a pastor's kid, this stuff just happens to you. But I just had this lesson this week. My my one of my sons was answering questions on a application to a private school, Christian school, and they said, "Are you a Christian?" And his answer was, "My father's a pastor." And I was, <laughs> on the week that I'm preaching this, I love the way he arranges these things. Because you talk to the son, and that's, I mean, he understands that it's, like, he understood the problem right away, right? But what's our temptation? What's our temptation when you're raised in Christian homes? Are you a Christian? Well, my dad is a Christian. 
I go to church every week, right? The first four answers don't mention the words Jesus, faith, I believe, or any of that, right? And why? Is that really what, you got to work on that, right? And, and, and even in this section, Paul has to warn the Gentiles, hey, don't say, oh, we were grafted in and they were taken out and therefore there's nothing, right? We're grafted in now. We're in, baby. Which Luther thought was the most ironic thing that this book is written to Romans and during the, the Reformation, the Roman Catholics were like, oh, well, I mean, come on, we're the mother church. We go back to Peter. Our dad's Peter. They were making the very mistake these Gentiles, that Paul was warning them not to make. It's about faith, not flesh. It's about your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for you, regardless of what you yourself have done. Now, one more caveat here before we dive headlong into 11. I know, I know, it's getting strong nigh. But if you turn with me to Romans 9, verse 6, chapter 9, verse 6, there's something there that is, or 6 through 8, that's very important for us to understand covenant language and how people like me and Joel and Jared use it. It says, but it is not as though the, the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul states that there is an Israel within Israel. There is Israel, and then, you know, there's Israel, which that's not confusing at all. One of physical descent and one according to promise. There's two Israels. It is those Israelites who have been elected and called by God who are truly the children of God and the offspring of Abraham. For example, it was Isaac rather than Ishmael who was the child of promise, even though both were physical descendants of Abraham. Right? How much sense does the story make? You go back and there's Ishmael and Isaac, and Ishmael's like, well, I, you know, my dad's Abraham. My dad's Abraham. Well, no, except it tells us that one of you he, God hated and one of you God loved. One of you are the chosen and one of you are not. So always within Israel, there's two Israels. Now, some could object and say Ishmael obviously wasn't the child of promise. He was birthed by Hagar. But if you go down in Genesis a little further, you get to Jacob and Esau. They're twins, both descendants of Abraham and Isaac. Both have the same mother. And yet God says, one of them I love and one of them I hate. One of them is an Israelite and one of them is a true Israelite. So within Israel, there's always, it's always a mixed bag. Paul is distinguishing a true eschatological Israel of promise within historical or ethnic Israel, the visible church or the invisible church. This is one terrible way of explaining it, right? Here you all are. I can see all of you here. I call you Christians. I have no problem with that. You are God's children. I have no problem addressing you as saints. I have no problem from the youngest to the oldest talking to you as if you're the people of God. Now, within this church is the true church, because on the last day, what will be revealed? Who actually is a Christian, right? So I can say you're all Christians because I'm just going from external evidence. I'm going from covenant signs and seals. I'm going with what God told me to go with, which is what I can see, taste, measure, consider. And then on the last day, right, there will be some of you who say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will be like, I don't know you. And there will be other people, I guarantee you, we see them going in with Jesus and be like, how in the world did that guy get in here? Who let him in? 
I knew that guy, and I, he never was, did a Christian thing or a Christian thought one moment in the whole time I ever knew him. Now, how does that work? Well, that's above my pay grade. But that's the reality. There is an Israel within Israel. There is a hidden Israel. Another way of understanding is the church militant, the church that's active in the world, and the church triumphant. That, those saints and sheep that are separated from the goats on the last day who stand with Christ, we have no idea who they are. People do not wear name tags, and that makes pastoral ministry very difficult, but worth it. The elect, the invisible church, the church triumphant is hidden until the last day. Now, if you go to Romans 9, 27, it says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And now that, that's kind of a poke at that old promise, right? One day, Abraham, your children will be as the sands on the sea. Now, that promise never meant all of those children who are as hard to count as the sand on the shore, will be true Israel. And if you go back and you read Samuel and you read Kings and you read Chronicles and you read the, the part of the exilic prophets, there's always Israel within Israel, isn't there? You can go in at any point where there's a king in Israel and you're like, okay, we're being told the story and you're like, okay, there's, some of these people are actually Israel and some of these people are not. But through the whole story, there's always a faithful band Right, a spunky little faithful band that that God the Father is working through in order to continue His purposes. And at one point, what? It's Ruth and Naomi. That's right? that's the remnant. At one point, it's Esther and her uncle or father or whoever it was that was helping her with the king. I mean, at at some point, the the remnant is pretty small. Now let's turn to Romans. 11, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what's he saying there? Think about it, right? He's, not, he's saying he's one kind of Israel without saying he's the other kind of Israel. Because he's talking about his descent, he's not talking about his faith. His faith is well established. At the very start of the letter, he talks about his faith that he hopes the Romans share with him. But now he's talking about, well, of course some of those guys get in. Here I am. So this whole chapter, we're going to see again and again, he's not talking about some future time. He's talking about the present. He's like, is there hope for the Jews now? Yes, because here I am. I am a fruit of the gospel. I am here by the grace of God. Has God barred Israel from participation in the new Israel? No, Paul himself is a Jew, an old Israelite, brought violently into new Israel. And what were, his, what were the disciples? What were all the disciples? Who preached on Pentecost? Who were the first to receive the ascended Lord Jesus? Well, if we turn to Acts chapter 2, right? Some people understand Romans 11 as if all Israel was kicked out. And we're just waiting for some future day where they're brought back. And that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the present ministry he has, the present ministry of the church that includes ethnic Jews. Because you go back on the first day of the church, the day the church was born, and who were the people preaching? Who were the people in the upper room? Who were the people receiving the preaching? Acts chapter 2, verse 36. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day, about 3,000 Jews. It says souls, but I just want to make my point very clear. Peter, an old Israelite, if there ever was one, says to Israel, repent and be baptized, be, right? You who, who crucified the Lord, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, how is he calling people to himself? Jesus, Right? He's, Peter's saying he's calling you to himself, and it's Peter saying it. And, and so, you know, preaching the hot gospel is the way people hear this news. Paul argues in Romans 11.5, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And who was he talking about? He's not talking about the entire nation of old Israel. He's talking about those who were there on, uh, at the beginning in Pentecost, all those Jews who have been receiving the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. Now, the evidence cited by Paul in Romans 11.1 1, to support a negative answer to his question indicates the actual thrust of his thought throughout the whole chapter. Has God cast off his people? No. Here is an old Israelite himself. In order to answer his own question, Paul does not marshal evidence that relates to some unknown future hope for old Israel. Instead, he's pointing to the reality of God's work in the present, even in the life of Paul himself. Paul continues to make this connection in Romans eleven thirteen to 14, where he says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So he's not talking about some ministry that lies in the future. He's talking about his ministry. And what is his ministry? His ministry, he has discovered, it took him a little while to figure it out, is to Jews, yes, but mostly to Gentiles. But he's hoping to make the Jews jealous by the fact that non-Israelites are becoming Israelites. So he's not talking about some future. He's talking about the present. He's talking about, here I am as proof. Here, my ministry is about this. And he's not talking about making some future Jews that he doesn't know jealous. He's talking about the Jews of his own day. He wants some of them to be saved. And how could they be saved unless there was some hope that they could actually be saved? Now, he's basing his comments on what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32.21, which is, I think an important distinction here because he's, he's talking about Deuteronomistic curses. Deuteronomy 32, 21, he says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. This is God speaking to Moses and Israel. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. 
So, so all of the while, while Paul is going around preaching, part of what's going on is, is foolish people, as he himself says, are getting saved and coming over to, to the true Israel. And those fools are supposed to make the, the old Israelites jealous. To understand Romans 11, we must see that a major concern in the middle section of this chapter is the current results of Paul's ministry. It's similar in Romans 11. You go down to verses 30 to 31. He carries on this language. He says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So why does he keep saying now, if he's talking about some future hope? Well, now they who weren't his people are his people, so that now the people who were his people aren't his people, (laughs) so that now some of them might be saved. And oh my gosh, he must be talking about, you know, Israel and Palestine and tomahawk missiles, and he's talking about, I don't know, building some temple with red heifers. I I don't really understand myself. I have tried. But it seems to me what Paul is talking about are the unbelieving Jews, those people who are appealing to something other than Jesus Christ. He's telling them there's hope. He's telling them this is what the ministry is about. This is what we're about right now. Now, let's, let's think about this for a second. In verse 32, he says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So there were people who were outside who weren't, who weren't allowed to come in. And so what Jesus did on the day of Pentecost was kick, he kicked everyone out. He kicked everyone out so that everyone might enter through the same means. On Pentecost, the remnant of Israel was in the upper room, those who first received the Spirit, Acts 1.15, on purpose, tells us how many people it is, and it's 120. Ladies and gentlemen, for a hot minute, the church was the size of 120 people. And there was no one else on earth who was a Christian, who was a believer, who was an Israelite, who was united to Christ, except for those 120 people in that room at that time. That's how small the church got. Now, that's the remnant that Paul is talking about. And then those 120 walk outside, start talking funny. Everybody accuses them of being drunk. And so Peter steps up to the plate and delivers a banger of a sermon. And, and boom, they go from 120 to 3,120. Right? And it's the hot gospel that does it. They're cut to the heart. They don't care about the lineage. They don't care about the law. They don't care about who their fathers are. They don't care about the temple. They don't care about the law of Moses. They are cut to the heart because Peter lays before them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you go on and read through Acts 2, what's happening? They're coming in droves. Now turn with me to Acts 2, because at the beginning of Romans, I'm sorry, Acts 10, Acts 10, at the beginning of Romans, Peter, or Paul says, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so we see that what happened on Pentecost that was offered to Jews first, because they were old Israel, if you're going to start somewhere, start with those people who already are familiar with the, the law of God, right? It's much easier for Paul to express how Moses teaches 
Christ because he has memorized Moses. That's a strategic plan. But it doesn't take very long. You get to chapter 10, and this is what we read in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have re- received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, doesn't that sound an awful lot like what happened on Pentecost? Pentecost, which was nothing but old Israelites. And now they're in, in a household of Gentiles. And the same thing occurs. There's hot gospel preaching. There's the descent of the Holy Spirit. The overcoming of the flesh with the new life of heaven. And then there's baptism. There's repentance. And, and what, what does it say? All the circumcised people are like, what in the what is going on here? And then we know in Acts 15, did it create a sense of jealousy within Israel? True Israel, right? Because the Christians start asking, like, well, how Jewish do these guys have to become? And it creates the very jealousy that Paul's talking about. Because they're like, wait, look, listen, I, when I was eight days old, they cut off the tip of my penis, Right? I've been following the law of Moses since I was four years old. I, I have to wash my hands. I've got to wash my face. I've got to wash my feet. I've got to wash everything. I've got to tithe cumin. And you're telling me these Gentiles just get to walk in here. Now, was there some jealousy? Yes, that's what largely the, the, the entire New Testament is about. How Jewish do these non-Jews have to get in order to stay here? And Paul and Peter and the group say, well, not much. I think they're pretty much there already. Right? And, all, and how Jewish do all these people stay two, three generations later? Right? How Jewish was, was Augustine from North Africa? How Jewish was Athanasius? Paul does not marshal evidence relating to the future of the Jews. Instead, he points to the reality of God's working in the present. Romans 11, 25 through 36 is where we run into a bit of a problem. Because if you get there, I'm going to first point out one thing. In verse 25, before he gets to the really juicy bit that I think is the problem with what I'm talking about relating these two ways of understanding this text, he says right there in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Okay. Well, in order for you to be humble, I want you to be aware of a mystery. Now, when he says something like that, do you think that you're going to then proceed to to read what he's going to say and be like, oh, okay, I have figured out the eschaton. I figured out eschatology now. I mean, he, he says it's a mystery. He says he wants him to be humble. But man, I have read enough Paul now. I read Colossians like three times. And I'm ready now to tell you all about the eschaton of the people of God. No, everything that proceeds here is a mystery. And for me, it's a mystery. And and I have strong theological convictions about what happens at the end. And what I realize from this is we don't really know. Because reading prophecy is not like reading history. 
I can go in my office, I can get a book on World War II, and we can sit down together and we can talk about what happened on June 1st and June 2nd and D-Day plus 3 and D-Day plus 4, and, D and it's all categorized, and we can read field reports, and we can look at live footage, and we can say, this is what happened. Prophecy doesn't work that same way. You don't read prophecy and be like, okay, well, this is what's going to happen on September 13th and then September 14th. Because he goes on here, and he says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. What's the mystery? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, well, I did my best in this week. I've actually been doing my best since just early in December. I have absolutely no idea what this means. What is the fullness of the Gentiles? What is that? I have no idea. A partial hardening, I at least understand that part because not everyone has been hardened. Paul is evidence of the fact not all Jews have been hardened. Okay, so there's a partial hardening. God, on purpose, is making it difficult for some people to understand the gospel. Well, you read Acts, and that seems very clear. But what does it mean that at the end of the fullness of the time of Gentiles, the Jews will come back? Or it doesn't actually say that. It says the partial hardening will end. It actually doesn't say they'll come back. It says the partial hardening will end. And, and what people have done is tried to figure out the events of the end times based on these verses. And I think that that is foolish. I, I don't care what your eschatological views are. It's foolish to make so much out of so few verses. It's like the rapture. If anyone can find a verse that teaches the rapture, I'll give you $30,000. I've been making that joke since the week after I became a Christian. I maintain this joke. I have 30 grand. I'll do it. If you can find the verse that tells me there is a rapture, I'll give you money. And it's very similar here. Find me a verse that tells you that after all the Gentile believers who are going to be Gentile believers become, Gent or become Christians, then all of Israel is going to come into the kingdom because that's how it's explained. And there's nowhere that teaches that. In a chapter where Paul is arguing for what's going on in the, his day, somehow becomes this very detailed plan about Jews and Palestinians and Iranians and missiles and Russia plays some part of it. I don't understand. You go into the book of Revelation, you start yanking stuff out of there and mixing it into this, and it tastes terrible. <laughs> and that is what we need to not do. What we need to do with difficult passages like this is two things. Read them very carefully in the context of a lot of chapters, not just in the immediate context. We need to do it with humility and we need to, when he says things like, this is a mystery, when somebody like Paul says it's going to be a mystery, because when he says things very clear, it's not very clear. I'm with Peter. Peter says there's difficult things to understand in Paul's writings. And his straightforward work sometimes is very confusing. But when he starts popping off about mysteries, I suddenly get very nervous. And if we approach it with this kind of humility, I think we're going to get further in what our responsibility is. And this is our responsibility. No matter what age you live in, no matter if you were standing there with, with Cain and Abel and, and Adam and Eve, whether you were there with Abraham and Sarah and you were part of their 300, whether you were there in Egypt when they led you out to the Exodus, whether you wandered in the desert, whether you were there with David, whether you were there with Moses, whether you were there in the exile, coming back, rebuilding the temple, whether it was in the first century, the third century, the 14th century, or now, there is one way to the kingdom of heaven, and it's Jesus Christ. The promise to Abraham is that every single nation will have access. 
And, and the Jews couldn't even spoil that themselves by slaying the Messiah who came to save them. And if there's hope for the people who, who literally put their hands on the second person of the Trinity, there is hope for anyone, even you. And that's what this is about. There is one kingdom, and there is one access point to that kingdom. There is one hope for that kingdom. There is one way to live in that kingdom. There is, and all of it is who? What is all of that? It is Jesus Christ. So I don't care, even if I've baptized you myself, I don't care who your parents are, right? I don't care what your lineage is. I don't care how long the Jews have been living in Israel. What I care about is Jesus. <laughs> in Saturday Night Live, now I don't watch Saturday Night Live, thank God, but occasionally I catch clips. And they had this thing that they thought was so funny where they wanted to solve the problems in the Middle East, and this fellow gets on there and he says, you know what they all need is Jesus. And, I, and, and I, I'm with Doug Wilson. I'm like, preach it, brother. Right? If you're gonna, even fools like guys on Saturday Night Live are going to preach the gospel. Let's have it. Because you know what they don't need are more F-18s. You know what they don't need are more AK-47s. What all of them need, regardless of their ethnicity, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of them. They need it just as much as every nation and tribe and tongue in the world needs it. There is one hope even for them. Ethnic Israel later isn't going to get some pass. There's not some cheat code because they've, they're Jews all the way down. If anyone who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because they were chosen by him, called by him, and faith in him gets them in. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you so much for Romans and Paul's ministry. We thank you, Lord, that your grace and mercy is extended to every person who is alive, that you are calling all people to yourself, that you desire all people to be saved. We pray, Lord God, for Israel and for Palestine and for Iran and for Saudi Arabia, Lord, and for all nations where you are, are far from them, Lord, because they have kept you away from their unbelief. We pray that there would be revival, not only in our land, but all the lands of the world, all the nations of the world, all the tongues of the world, and that you, your son would be revealed as the way and the truth and the life of everyone. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.